And before we uh, turn back to Philippians chapter 1, please uh, join me in prayer as we ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so many voices in this world competing for our attention. And really, there is only uh, one voice that we long to hear, and that is uh, the voice of our God. Um, So we do pray uh, to you, Lord God, um, that you would uh, shed your light uh, onto this portion of Scripture for us, uh, that we might be granted understanding. We want to understand more of your gospel. We want to comprehend the mystery of the good news. We want to, indeed, we long to learn more of you and your goodness to us. And we rely upon your Holy Spirit to teach us. So we, we cry out, Lord, please teach us at this time. Give us ears uh, to hear from you, we pray. And we do pray in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen. Okay, um, let me start this evening by asking you to do uh, two things by way of introduction. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you the work to do to start with. So two things by way of introduction. The first thing that I want you to do is to call to mind, just for a moment just now, to call to mind how the Bible speaks about Christian relationships. So let's just take a second to think about that. Call to mind how the New Testament in particular, how it speaks about Christian relationships. So what metaphors maybe come to mind about how the church is described? What's the church in the New Testament? Where would you go? You would go for the fact that the church is a body. Isn't that right? Church is a body. What does that tell us? It tells us that believers are members, but we are members together. Isn't that right? That gives us an insight into Christian relationships, that Christians are, believers are reliant. We are, in a sense, you could say, we are dependent upon each other. Okay, so the church is a body. What else comes to mind? I love this one. love it. The church is also the household of God. Isn't that a marvelous reality to think about? that the church is a, is a home. It's a, it's a family that in this house that we have a father. We've got a heavenly father in this home, this household. What else? We've, we've got an elder brother. We've got the Lord Jesus Christ. But then in addition to that, hang on a second, Christians are also joined together in this home as brothers and sisters, siblings, if you like. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it? You look at Scripture, and what do you see about Christian relationships? You see that believers are intrinsically, uh, intimately bound up to one another. So that's the first thing I want you to do. Call to mind how the New Testament thinks about Christian relationships. Fine. Second thing. Aha. Wait. Second thing is to consider for a moment the actual reality of your present Christian relationships. So you see what we're doing? First thing, we think about the spiritual reality of what is ours in Christ. The second thing is to actually think through what are your relationships like 
at the moment in reality. So I want you to think about some of the Christians you know. Maybe even think about and picture some of the believers at St. Peter's. So maybe bring to mind, call to mind the elders of the church. We're a motley crew, aren't we? Or, or maybe think about uh, some of the, the deacons of the church or think about some of the people who used to play the music when we had praise uh, in the church or the people on door duty or the people who have been here a long time. Now you think about them and I ask you, what really is your relationship with those people? And is there a, is there a deep, intimate bond that you have with those people that you've, you've thought about. Do you love those people? I mean, are you vested in their life? Do you really frequently pray for those people you've just pictured? I mean, are you serving those people sacrificially? Or, wait, is it, as it so often is, that these people are more like acquaintances, co-attendees, if you like, at a church service? It is a challenging exercise, I'm sure you would agree. Well, last week, if you were here or you tuned into the live feed, which I'm sure everybody did for last uh, Sunday evening, you'll know uh, that we begun last week a sermon series uh, in the New Testament book of Philippians. And we looked last week just at the greeting, so the opening couple of verses. Now, this evening, what we do is we kind of begin the body of the letter proper. We're just looking at verses one, sorry, verses three to five, and it's Paul's prayer, the start of Paul's prayer. And what I think we're going to see tonight is, well, yes, we're going to see the example that Paul gives you about praying. Okay, of course, we're going to see that. But I think even more startling is the strength of bond that Paul shares with his Philippian believers and brothers and sisters. Do, do, do you hear that? What I think will stand out is not the superficiality of these Christian relationships. That's maybe how that sums up some of our relationships. It's, it can be superficial. What will stand out here is the sincere love that Paul has for the other believers that he knows. And let me just set out what we'll do this evening. Sometimes it helps, doesn't it, to do that just so that we can follow along. So we like symmetry, don't we? So let's make it as symmetrical as we can this evening. So tonight we'll have two headings, two headings, each with a couple of sub-points. Two headings, each with a couple of sub-points. And let me just throw those two headings at you uh, just now. So first of all, we'll see the remarkable form of Paul's prayers for his fellow believers, the remarkable form of his prayers for his fellow Christians. That'll be the first thing. And then second of all, we will consider the relational basis for his prayers for his fellow Christians. So the remarkable form and then the relational basis. So we're going to look at Philippians 1. Make sure, please, that you've got a copy of Scripture uh, open in front of you at Philippians 1. Let's think about that remarkable form, that first thing, the remarkable form of his prayers. Okay, a couple of years ago, maybe even a little bit more than that, uh, the big tech giant Google, it changed the way that it worked its email systems. 
Okay, so this was a couple of years ago. So what Google did was it began to give the users of that account some prompts or suggestions in how to finish off the sentences. Now, you'll know this if you've got a Google account or a Gmail account. Okay, so you're typing along. And all of a sudden, you just need to put one or two words in, and it's going to give you a suggestion for how to complete your, your, your sentence as though you were a fool. Okay, now, this might not seem like a big change, but it has revolutionized how people communicate with each other. Because as I'm speaking to you just now, there are a million emails out there pinging about, and they all begin the same way, don't they? Isn't that right? So all these emails, and it'll be dear so-and-so, or hi so-and-so, and they'll all say, I hope this email finds you well. Isn't that right? A million, million emails all begin in the same way. I don't know if it drives you mad. I don't know what it says about me that it drives me uh, mad. And I do everything in my power to get away from that formulaic beginning to an email. It drives me insane, honestly. Now, I like to pretend to myself that what I'm actually doing there is following after the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Because believe it or not, in the ancient world, the convention when it came to writing a letter was to do exactly that. In the ancient world, it was actually to begin with a well-being section at the beginning of your letter. So what we had last week, do you remember? We had, it began, in the ancient world, it began Author, one word. Recipient, one word. Greeting, one word. And honestly, in the ancient world, they would then say, (laughs) I hope this, not email, obviously, but I hope this uh, letter finds you well. And maybe, if you know Scripture, you can see what Paul does with that. Do you? You think about it? Unlike the greeting sections in the ancient world that Paul actually thought, right, I'm going to use that. I'm going to adapt the greeting sections in all of his epistles. What does he do with that well-being section? He does what I want to do with it, and he kicks it into touch. doesn't use it at all. And all of his epistles, or most of his epistles, he replaces that and replaces it with what? With a section about prayer. Prayer. Okay, now under this heading... Um, we're thinking about, what did I say? I said the form of his prayer. So can you see what that means, really? We're thinking here about the manner, like how is it that Paul prays for his fellow believers? So almost like we're in a music classroom. The first thing that I want you to hear is a note, and it's a note of gratitude. So can you all please look with me to the very beginning of verse 3. If you look at verse 3, and what does he say? How does he pray? Do you see it's very simple in a sense. Paul says, I thank God. I thank my God. Now, here's the danger, I reckon. This is the danger. I reckon that when you hear that the theme is gratitude in prayer that you perhaps are going to get ahead of me and you perhaps are going to assume you know where I'm going to go in application here. So the theme is gratitude and prayer. There's the danger that you could assume you think you know where we're going to go here. Why? Because I reckon all of us have heard preachers say the same thing about gratitude and prayer. Have we all heard this? 
under the following. Our preacher will stand up and say, there is not enough gratitude in Christian prayer. We heard that before. There's not enough gratitude in Christian prayer. That Christian prayer tends to be what? A whole long list of petitions. It's like giving God a to-do list and there's not enough thanksgiving. Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's correct. Maybe it is. But this evening, I want to give you much more credit than I'm sure you do. Thank God in prayer, do you? I'm sure you do. So instead, what I want you to do right now is to consider for a moment the content of your thanksgiving. Do you understand? To actually go through in your mind, well, hang on, what do I thank God for? It is a remarkably helpful barometer for your own spiritual well-being to think through, what am I grateful for? What am I thanking God for? Maybe you do that just for a moment. Maybe it's a challenging thought. Because if you're anything like I am, you know that horrible minister confession time. Here we go. But if you're anything like me, your times of gratitude and your prayers of thanksgiving can be very focused on the temporal things, the things of this earth, thanking God even for material things. I mean, does that ring true for you? You know, you thank God for Oh, your, I don't know, your, you know, improvements in your financial situation, or you thank God for, for exams that have been passed, or you thank God for improvements that you're seeing in health, you thank God for, for I don't know, your house, your car, your, your, the advance, and your, and your kids. Now, now um, please don't get me wrong, some of this is good, some of this is fine, but don't you find it really interesting to know what Paul is thankful for here. Have a look at verse 3. Isn't it something? I mean, he's writing to Christians, and he says, I'm, I'm thanking my God every time I remember you. Isn't this something? Did you see it? Like, what's Paul doing? Paul is actually spending good time, proper time, quality time, and he's thanking God for his fellow believers. He's thanking God for the Christians that he knows, thanking God for what God has done for them, and surely what God is doing for them. It's a beautiful reality. God praying, sorry, Paul praying for his fellow believers. Now, sometimes it's really difficult when you're wrestling with Scripture, isn't it, to, to see how a portion of Scripture applies uh, to our lives. Sometimes it's really difficult. <laughs> sometimes it's very straightforward and obvious. And surely that's the case this evening. And so to think about the direct application for our lives, even as we go into this week, this is what I would ask you to do. If you look at verse 3, and you can see that it's in two phrases, if you like. And for it to just jump out the page at us, just swap the phrases around. So Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, to see the direct application, switch that around. What does he say? Every time I remember you. Every time I think of you, I thank God. And I'm saying to you as a congregation this evening, can we not do that? Indeed, 
Isn't it true that it would revolutionize our prayer lives if we were to follow suit? That every time that our fellow believers, even in this room, that we thought about them, that we prayed in thanksgiving to God for these people? I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that every time we think about a fellow believer, we drop to our knees and we we spend an hour in prayer. No, bullet prayers, you know the idea, right? An an arrow prayer, a, a short prayer. But can we not do it? I mean, every time you hear a mission work or a mission organization mentioned, every time even an email comes through to you from a member of the office staff or from an an elder, even in conversation with the Christians you you know, even on the way home tonight, if there's people in here you haven't seen for a while, what, what can we do? We can pray on the spot for these people. In particular, can we not just praise God and thank God for our brethren. Thank God that he's chosen those people. Like he's called them. He's taken his name and placed it on these people. Can we not thank God for what he continues to do in the members of our church? What do we hear just now? You might see, oh, I hear a man rattling on. No, hopefully we hear a note of gratitude But then there's a second noise we hear. We hear a note of rejoicing in Paul's prayer, a note of rejoicing. Uh, Years ago when I was in school, so I don't know, whatever it is, 25 years ago in Inverness, in high school, I had a teacher uh, with the most eccentric habit. Um, So if this teacher, when when he was teaching the class, if he had something really important to say, or he thought it was really important and if it was coming up in the exam, what he would do is he would take a meter stick. Do we remember meter sticks? He would take a meter stick and he would smash the meter stick against the blackboard. This was his way of getting his class. So there's me sitting in the classroom. I'm probably looking out the window and, and daydreaming. And then there would be the smash and I would jump out of my Well, in a sense, honestly and quite seriously, Paul does something similar to that here. Obviously, no meter stick and no blackboard. But what he does here is he rearranges his material. So he rearranges the wording here, and he does that to draw your attention to something that the Apostle Paul sees as really important. So do you want to see what it is? Look at verse 4 with me. Okay, so Paul smashed the meter stick against the blackboard, and we're all wondering, what is this? And he says in in verse 4, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. You with me? So it's with joy, I always pray for you. Now, if you know the letter of Philippians, and you know it, don't you? You know it, uh, know it well, I'm sure. If you do, you'll know what that is, do you? You know that that there is the first instance of a theme that recurs all the way through this letter. So Philippians is a short letter, isn't it? Isn't it? Like four chapters, very short letter. Now wait for it. Paul mentions joy in a number of forms, but he mentions it something like 15, 
16, 17 times in all different forms right throughout the letter. Now, I'm saying to you, what do you think about that? And you might think, sounds nice. You know, he's happy. You know, he's he's writing a letter of joy and he's content and uh, that's great. Is that what we think? But isn't it actually a truly remarkable thing when you remember where he is? Paul, what did we say last week? Paul is in chains. Paul is locked up. I mean, he's under house arrest. He is in a horrible situation here. And so what do you ask of the text? You know what I ask? I ask, like, how is that possible? A letter where you're talking about your contentment, you're, you're talking about joy in your circumstance, in your situation, how can that happen? I think, friends, we'll only begin to grasp this if we can have an appreciation of the nature of Christian joy. And the believers in the room, I turn that to you. What is it? You would say back, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Joy, what do we know about it? Is an outworking of God's, the very presence of God in our, in our heart. And then it makes sense, doesn't it? Because in light of that, how is it possible that Paul can write and write about joy? And we know the answer because Christian joy Wait, it's not dependent upon our circumstances, is it? Like Christian contentment is not dependent on our immediate situations. Christian joy is something that that can transcend all of our predicaments, all of our situation as the Holy Spirit helps us to view our lives, our world through the lens of God's activity, God's goodness, God's grace. And so I wonder, if you use your imagination, just for a second, I wonder if you can picture Paul with your mind's eye. Can you do that? Where is he? A horrible situation. You know, in chains, in Rome, under house arrest. What's he doing? He's on his knees, and he's praying, cuffed, but he's praying to God, And what do you see? You see a smile creep across his face. Why? Because as he prays and as he thinks about the Philippians, he can pray in thanksgiving for what God is doing for those people. He can see that. He appreciates God's work in their life. And it's that that gives him joy. It's that that makes his heart delight. Friends, I honestly think we have to ask ourselves from these verses, is that a reflection of how we pray for our believers here at St. Peter's. Is that a reflection here of how you pray or how I pray? If not, this week we go to Scripture, we meditate upon the gospel that we too might rise above our problems, we might transcend our circumstances, and we might be able to thank God and find joy in what God is doing in and through our members, our fellow members of this church. Okay, so we've seen the remarkable form. Uh, Second of all, so two headings, second heading, the relational basis for Paul's prayers, the relational basis. Um, So we thought about the manner. So what characterizes Paul's prayer? And we would say gratitude and joy, wouldn't we? That's the form, that's how he's praying. But we want to know, I suppose, For what does he pray? Don't we? We want to know the content of Paul's 
prayer. Um, okay, big question for you all. This is a very serious and important question. Um, do you like American food? Do you like American food? Um, I love American food. It might not be the most refined uh, of all cuisines in the world, but I love American food. Um, Catherine and I, when we were in London, we took it upon ourselves to try as many uh, American diners in London as we could afford and as we could find, just out of research purposes, of course. But there's me in an American diner, you know, in a booth, I'm sitting there, and it's all, it's all, I'm all about the ribs, okay? So I'm, there's me ripping the, the flesh off the bones. Okay, well, in a sense, that is actually what I want us to do just for a moment or two. Because if you look at verse 5 with me, you will see Paul give you the content, or at least part of the content of his thanksgiving. Now, do you see? He, he thanks God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. You see that phrase there? That's our ribs. The partnership of the gospel. Because what I want us to do is just try and pick that apart, get that down to the bones, the partnership of the gospel. So can, what, what does it mean? Partnership of the gospel. What does it mean? I mean, obviously there is something of a relationship there or intimacy there, but what does it mean to be partners in the gospel? Well, as before, do you remember we had two sub-points here? Let's do the same. And the first thing I want you to consider is gospel friendships at St. Peter's. Gospel friendships. I want to, I want to ask you whether you uh, think you know any biblical Greek. I'm sure there's some scholars in here. And do you know some biblical Greek? There's some obvious places I might look. Uh, what about the rest of the folks? Do we think we know any biblical Greek? I like asking people this, not because I'm a, a, a Greek scholar in any way, uh, but I like asking people this because they know, everyone knows more biblical Greek than they think that they know. Baptizo. Any idea? Baptism. There you go. See, you knew more Greek than you thought you knew. Or logos. If we've been around in church for any length of time, the logos of God, the word of God, agape, you know, a form of love, we do know more biblical Greek than we realize. Well, the word that Paul uses here in verse 5. So it's that word, partnership. Now, the reason I've mentioned the biblical Greek is that that is taken from another word that you may know, a word that is quite familiar to us, and it's this word. See if you've heard of this. It's the word koinonia. Have we heard of that in church? Koinonia, a lot of nodding heads. It is a word that is very, very often translated fellowship. Paul thanking God for the fellowship of the Philippians. Now, do you see, this is not an empty exercise, do, do you see how that actually helps us here in interpreting Scripture? What is Paul doing at this point? He is praying to God, and he is thanking God actually for the really deep heart connection that he's got with these Philippian believers. Isn't he doing that? He's thanking God, wait, for the link that he has through Christ to those believers, thanking God for the love 
that he shares in Christ for these Philippians. And to be honest with you, if you just look at the text in front of you, I was going to say you'll see this, but you'll feel it. Look at the text from verse 3 to 5. I mean, do you not sense the emotion? Do you not sense the love? I mean, look what he says here. I'm thanking God for, for you all of the time. I'm always thinking about you. Every time I remember you, I'm praying. I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking of you. Your heart fills me with joy. Do you feel the emotion? Like, do you get the sense of it? This is Paul writing and saying, I love you guys. <laughs> I really, really love you. And I'm thanking God for you so, so much. Now, Maybe it's the case that this evening you can relate to that sentiment a little bit, can you? I reckon if I was to go around the room and I was to ask the Christians in the room, I reckon all the believers in here could give me examples of Christians that you know that you really love. You know, Christians, maybe at St. Peter's or in different places, right, that you share a connection with and you really, really care for. Is that, that's true? Surely that's true. And that is marvelous. But I have to say to you, there's something here that certainly for me, I find, uh, I find so difficult and so challenging. Because if you go back to the text and to verse four, I'm asking you, who does Paul feel this way about? Look at this love, this fellowship, this friendship. Do you see what he says? Who's he thanking God for? In all my prayers for all of you. Now, do you see why that is surely a challenging thought for all of us? So Paul is not rejoicing that he feels this way about some of the congregation in Philippi. No. Paul is not saying to God, I thank you that I've got some friends in Philippi. But some of the other people I don't really know, and I don't like some of the other people. It's not like that at all. Paul is writing, thanking God, thanking God for all of these people. He, he views fellowship with, with all of this congregation. And if that is not challenging enough for you, you think about how varied that congregation was. How different Paul is to those people. What do we learn from Acts 16? So this is Paul... Hebrew of Hebrews, Jew of Jews, and he has this lovely bond of Christian love with who? With a Roman jailer. So this is Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's thanking God for this connection he has, this lovely Christian connection with a Gentile businesswoman called Lydia. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it beautiful? What I think we see here such as the, the transformational power of the gospel, that rich relationships, radical relationships can be formed in churches with people from all manner of different backgrounds and different situations. That is what, what seems to have happened in Philippi. That is what Paul enjoyed, and that is what can continue to happen here at St. Peter's. So gospel friendships. But don't you loathe uh, that moment when you're in a restaurant and uh, the waiter comes over and he tries to take your food before you're finished. 
Yeah, that's not a great moment. And so let's not do that with ribs. There's still a little bit flesh left on this bone here. So I said two areas for this partnership. We've got gospel friendships, but also I want you to think about gospel cooperation. Gospel cooperation. See, what have we just said? We've said that word koinonia is more often than not translated. Do we remember? It's translated fellowship. The obvious thing to say is, it isn't translated like that here. I'll tell you the reason why. Because right at the heart of this word, koinonia, is the idea of Christians participating in something together. So right in the heart there of that word, if you dug right into it, it's the idea of Christians working together in something. So we have to establish, well, in, in, in what? Well, um, I was saying uh, to Hugh uh, earlier on, uh, before the morning service, that uh, he was asking how I was getting on, and I was saying, well, slowly but surely trying to get to know uh, people in the congregation. You can imagine that it's, uh, it's a bit challenging at a time like this, uh, where we can't socialize and, and meet up together. And so uh, it's probably fair that I don't know you well. I wonder if this is uh, the case in your life. Is it the case that you in your situation just now, you are friends with some nominal Christians? Are there any people like that in your life? And there are people you're friends with who are part of more liberal churches. Do you know these people? If so, if you're friends with nominal Christians, you will know that very often people in liberal churches, liberal brands of Christianity, they will use the word, the terminology gospel quite frequently. Isn't that true? I follow a number of uh, liberal church leaders on Twitter and social media, and I've got a number of nominal Christian friends. And you know what? They're always talking about the gospel. They're always saying the word gospel this, gospel that. Now, hang on. What's the problem there? You might say the problem is that their understanding of the gospel is very different to our understanding of the gospel. You might say that. I think it's more essential than that. Surely it is that so rarely do liberal Christians define what they mean when they talk about the gospel. Isn't that the problem? That the gospel is used, it's thrown about this, gospel this, gospel that, but in reality it's amorphous. It's, it's very, very vague. Now, evidently here, in front of you, in your hands in Philippians, Paul views the Philippians as partners in the gospel. So, if we're going to understand this at all, we at least have to know what does he mean by that. So, I would ask you to do this. Look on a little bit in the chapter to verse 15, please. Even let the young ones have a look. Let's look to verse 15, 1, 5. Now, do you see it there? Do you get it? Verse 15. Now, this is what I want you to think about and to notice. I want you to notice that for Paul, the apostle, in Philippians, the gospel is not vague. (laughs) It's not just a sentiment, friends. It's not just the love. Let's extend love to people in the name of God. What I need you to see here 
is that for Paul and Philippians, the gospel is something intrinsically tied to the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. So look at verse 15. My question to you is, how does Paul speak about the preaching of the gospel? Do you see it in verse 15? What is it? It is preaching Christ. Do you see it? Like so closely is the gospel linked to Jesus Christ that for Paul in Philippians, these are interchangeable terms almost. And maybe you think that's a mistake. But look at verse 17. Guess what? It's the same. Verse 18, it is the same. Do you see the point? A truly biblical comprehension of the gospel must understand that gospel as entirely centering on the work, the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, a way of salvation has been opened up by God, and hallelujah for that. But it's a way of salvation that is only, only comes to us in the person of his Son. It is Christ who has lived sinlessly for us to secure heaven for his people, isn't it? It is Christ Jesus who has died vicariously for us, bearing all of our sins in his death. It is Christ Jesus who has risen victorious to take that sting out of death. Do you see? The gospel is not a catch-all phrase, not just some adjective that we use. It's not vague. It's not amorphous. It centers in Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the gospel, Christ and him crucified. And if you follow that, surely everyone in the room, we now see what Paul means when he talks about the Philippians being partners in the gospel. What does he mean, friends? You might say, oh, it's about their financial gift that they give him up. That's maybe part of it. But Paul thanks God for everything that church is doing to make known the name of Jesus here in Rome, he's falling to his knees in chains, but he's falling to his knees in joy. And he's thanking God that he's not alone in that prison. He's thanking God that there are others out there who are fully committed to spreading that good news of salvation, that good news that comes in Jesus Christ. It is that that brings his heart joy. It's that that makes him delight. And so, friends, I do wonder, should these verses not give us pause for thought tonight, especially in how we regard each other? Let's go back to the initial questions. Think about the people at St. Peter's. Think about the other Christians you know. What is your relationship with those people really like? Come on, this is not just theoretical. What is your relationship with these people like? Just co-attendees at church? Just acquaintances? Or are we actually partners in the gospel? Are we not? What a beautiful thought. Perhaps we need to be more involved in each other's lives. Not so that we can be nosy. Not so we can just butt in. No. So we can find out how we can serve each other, find out who we're trying to reach with the gospel, why, yes, so our relationships will build, but much more that like Paul, we might be able to pray to God with deep thanksgiving for those who are working with us 
to advance the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I, I know time's gone, I get it. Just end with this. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, hear this. If you look back, so much, so much tonight has been about relationships, hasn't it, between Christians? If you look back at verse 3, what do you see? Paul actually mentions a different relationship. Not just a relationship between Christians. Notice it. What does he say? It's a relationship with God himself. He says, I thank, that's an amazing thought, I thank my God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he is able to speak about the almighty transcendent creator, the one who's brought the solar system into being in a word. Paul is able to speak about this God and in terms of a very, very personal, intimate relationship. He is my God, my God. If you're not a Christian, what I think every single child of God, every believer in this room would affirm, is that that is the most wondrous thing. Isn't it, Christian friends? Isn't it the most beautiful thing to be able to say, he is my God. He is my God in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Friend, that is what is on the table before you today. You can have that saving relationship with God, but only, only in Jesus Christ. Will you not come to him this evening and find joy, joy in Jesus of Nazareth, joy forevermore. Friends, let's bow and pray. Lord God, we asked humbly this evening that like in Nehemiah 8, uh, you would bring us to a point of contrition and that you would show us our sin, perhaps it is the case, Lord God, that as we think about our relationships with our fellow believers, that we recognize areas for growth there, areas where we have not thought properly of our brothers and sisters in Jesus. But we also ask you, Lord God, that you would remind us of the gospel, that we might go out of these doors rejoicing, we thank you that we have cause at least for that in Christ. We thank you that you have dealt with our sin. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we can pray to you and we can call you our God, our Father. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.